Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Well, I'm so glad you made it here today. Merry Christmas to all of you. I've been told that it is snowing outside, so thank God for a white Christmas. All right. You guys excited to be here tonight? All right. Well, you guys know the drill. This is my one Christmas wish. Turn to your neighbor and just say, go Cowboys. Let's do it. Any, any Cowboy fans here tonight? Okay. I love it. I love it. Well, again, I'm glad you made it here tonight. If you don't know me, my name is Chris. My wife and I, my beautiful wife, Kelly, and I pastor Capital Church, and it's just a privilege to be a part of, I think, the greatest church in the world. And uh, can we give it up for our uh, media team, our production team, and our worship team for everything that they, do- they, they did this evening for us? They are amazing. They are amazing. Well, there's a TV show that uh, came out several years ago, and uh, according to one, one pastor, it's completely unwatchable, so I'm not even going to name it, so don't even get it in your head. Don't even ask me the name of this show. It's, it's uh, according to people, it's vulgar, it's, it's, it's violent. Uh, there are many characters that personify um, unspeakable evil and darkness. In fact, really the whole, the whole ethos of the show really is a story that plunges you into the dark underside uh, or the dark underbelly of society. So it's a really dark show. Again, don't ask me uh, what uh, the name of the show is. However, in the final scene, there are two friends that are having a conversation outside. So there's one guy played by, I'm going to throw you a bone. So some of you are just, you can't get out of your head. You're trying to guess what the show is. Uh, this one guy's played by Matthew McConaughey. That's your only clue, okay? He looks up at the night sky with tears in his eyes, and he says to his friend, we'll call him Chuck. I tell you, Chuck, there's just one story. It's the oldest one. His friend, Chuck, then asked uh, Matthew McConaughey, well, what's that? And then his response was, well, it's light versus dark. There's the pause, and then his friend looks up at the night sky filled with stars, And then he looks at his friend and says, man, it appears to me that the dark has a lot more territory. As a pastor retells this this scene, he says there's a long pause between them. And then Matthew McConaughey's character says this, you're looking at the sky wrong because once there was only darkness. So if you ask me, the light is winning. So the title of my mini sermon this evening is no matter what it looks like outside, the light is winning tonight. I agree with this pastor. I understand the dangers of comparing Matthew McConaughey with the Christmas story, okay? But this is close to what John says and what Lindsay just read for us in verses four through five. In Jesus, or in him, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So the question is, what is this darkness? And that's an important question, especially on Christmas. According to one scholar, any religious system which ignores the dark side of life are fundamentally dishonest. In Christmas, as Christians, we don't play pretend. We look at the darkness and define it honestly, and then we realize that our only hope is found in Jesus. So here's the thing. What is the darkness? Give you a little, little history here. When we trace the darkness we can, in, in the biblical story, we can take it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, in eating the fruit, decided to um, define the beautiful, the good, um, the right and the wrong on their own terms. So as they ate the fruit, they were essentially making a decision to define right and wrong based on their own preferences. I also got information that they were Packer fans, so God also expelled them from the garden. Do we have any Packer fans here tonight? Oh my God, please. I, no. Merry Christmas. There will be coal in your stocking tonight. I'm kidding. This choice, again, Adam and Eve, as they ate the, the fruit of the tree, which ultimately is defining good and evil on their own terms, set off this devastating chain reaction of death and corruption that had global consequences. All of creation became spoiled by this one act of defining reality on their own preference. The Bible names this complex act as darkness. We have passages like Isaiah chapter 7 and 9, where it says the land lies in the shadow of a deep darkness. We have Psalm 23, it says, Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So darkness, because of this one very complex act of defining the good, the righteous, the, the just, based on human terms, set off this cataclysmic event wherein all of creation was spoiled. And we know this, right? This is not just a theological tell, this darkness theme. This, this darkness is an unquestioned truth that is grounded in the reality of our lives. We all have experienced this darkness. Can I get an amen? We know what it's like. We've experienced the, the, the effects of this one act of defining reality on one, one's own terms. And we also have participated in it collectively as humans. There's no one that's ex, here tonight that is exculpated from uh, participating in the darkness of defining reality on one's own terms. So we come to our current moment. We have a lot of dark things going on, right? We are in a pandemic. We have mutant variants. We have a pandemic lexicon. People talk about social distancing. We, I now know the RO factor of a different, of like a different like mutating virus. Like what's wrong with me, right? Uh, I, anxiety outside of COVID is the number one major public health issue. We are living in the throes of a truth crisis. We're no longer asking the question, what is truth? We are asking the question, is there such a thing as truth? In front of our eyes, we are now witnessing the fraying of our political fabric. Democrats and Republicans, 25% on both sides of the aisle, believe that political violence is justified. We are now living in a new time, people. In a new time, darkness seems, seems to be everywhere. On a personal note, I know many people who have had close friends, or they've been close friends with people for decades who are no longer talking to each other because of politics or because of religion. 
We're tired. Maybe some of you are stressed out tonight. Maybe some of you are overwhelmed with life. Maybe some of you, Uncle Rico is coming over to um, uh, dinner tonight, and you don't want Uncle Rico or Ricky or whoever, right, to come over. Tonight, let's just be honest, some of us are really overwhelmed with the responsibility and the weight that we have to carry every single day of just simply living. Neuropsychologists are saying the world, not just a few people, the world has experienced over the last two years cognitive decline, which makes sense. You just, go on, you just go on social media and you can see that cognitive decline right in front of your face, right? Can I get an amen to that? That was a joke. You guys didn't laugh. All right. Guys, I call me to be a comedian. All right, I get it. But we're here tonight to celebrate Christmas. Why? Because Christmas is a reminder that the light won 2,000 years ago over the darkness and the light is still winning today. What the Christmas story um, tells us or what the Christian story functions to tell us or, or helps us, I'll say it this way. The, Christian, the Christmas story helps us or rescues us from our earthbound delusions about our life, our reality, about who we are as humans. Remember before the pandemic, we all thought we were in control. Now we just realize, okay, maybe things aren't in our control as we thought they were, right? So now we're rethinking our earthbound delusions because of what we've been through over the last several years. But Christmas also helps us or empowers us to assess reality around the basis or upon the basis of who Jesus is. Not on the basis of a Ricky Bobby baby Jesus version, but on the basis of John's version that we read tonight. So the question is, okay, so how so, Chris? How, how do I reassess reality, right? How does Christmas get me out of this, my earthbound delusions of control or whatever? Well, John tells us with his high poetic voice who Jesus is in verses 1 through 3 and verse 14 and why Christmas changed the universe. In verse 1, John writes, in the beginning was the Word. This is an echo of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was, in Genesis 1.1, God. So here we have beginning uh, which is the Hebrew word uh, reshet, which is the time marker. This time marker in the Genesis story, the Genesis account in 1-1, shows God speaking the entire expanse of the cosmos into existence. From coffee beans to tiny electrons to majestic mountain ranges, all are the result or the cause of God speaking everything into being. Everything we know in life, except with the exception of cats, is a result of God's creative voice. I heard there was, I got, I get some infos on cats and their, how they were gen genetically modified in a bio lab 2000 years ago and they were leaked. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome for that. Have you seen the cat video? I'd even, I'm just going for it. Have you seen the YouTube cat video where the guy opens up and he's freaking out about his present and then his pet cat comes and grabs his neck. You're welcome. Okay. In the beginning, in the beginning, everyone say in the beginning. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. Was, I'm not, I'm not going to get in, into the linguistic weeds here, but was is a state of verb, which means essentially in continuing existence before the beginning. So what John is saying here about Jesus, 
was that Jesus was in the beginning before the beginning who began everything. The Word. In the beginning was the Word. John is dabbling into some, into some philosophy here. It says, in the beginning was the Lagos. In Greek Stoic philosophy, the Lagos is the supreme universal reality. It's the rational principle by which all things exist. Right? This is the word that John chooses to identify Jesus with. The Lagos, again, in, in Greek Stoic philosophy, is a non-communicative impersonality, much like the force used in like the Star Wars trilogy or whatever it is, right? In the Star Wars cos cosmology. It's an impersonal force used by good or bad forces uh, that, are, that, that can be easily manipulated. In Stoic philosophy, the Lagos doesn't speak, and this is important for us to understand. The Lagos doesn't know your name. The thing that holds the universe together doesn't know your name in Greek philosophy. It's an unconscious life force. Right? It doesn't even know your kid's name. doesn't even know your great, 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 great grandfather's name. It doesn't know that unspeakable horror that you witnessed when you were five years old. It doesn't, it doesn't understand, doesn't, can't even sympathize or identify when you lost your loved one and you spent months and months and months waking up at two o'clock every night, weeping your face off over grief and fear and anxiety. This Lagos doesn't love you. It doesn't care about what you're going through. It is indifferent to your suffering and anxiety. It could care less about your problems. So the question is, why would John use Lagos to identify Jesus? Well, we know one thing that's happening. John is using the Genesis story to turn Stoicism's understanding of Lagos upside down. Instead of being an impersonal force that doesn't care about you, your kids, your body, your brain, your health, your sickness, your future, your past, your history, your shame, your failures, your sin, all of that stuff, the Logos is a personal, creative word of God that spoke the universe of things into existence. And then John used this kind of, in, in, with this very high poetic voice, uses this kind of the art of intensification. So he intensifies it by saying the word was not just in the beginning, but the word was God. So essentially, John is saying Jesus was before existence, existed in a face-to-face -face relationship with the God. And then he says, as kind of a denouement, right? I, I promised the other service that I wouldn't use big words. Forgive me, okay? But this is the climax of this, this th three-verse little piece. The word was God. In other words, the logos shares the essential characteristics of the God. So what, what John is telling us here, and this is like so profound, and this is really the essence of the Christmas story, is that Jesus is not simply your personal guru, right? Jesus is not um, some moral teacher that in, in the world of antiquity spun some nice little stories about the kingdom. Jesus is not some bougie, post-colonialist, um, pagan, That's, that's a New Yorker, okay? Jesus is not like a Bible-thumping, gun-toting, like whatever kind of figure. That's, that's a Texan. I wanted to defend everybody in this room here, okay? Now, what John is saying in these first three verses, again, this is the essence of Christmas. 
Jesus is the revelation of God. In fact, if you want to get to know who the true God is, you got to get rid of all your perceptions of who you think God is, and you got to start with Jesus, and then you got to take all your, your impressions or assumptions about God and force them around Jesus or shape them around Jesus. Jesus, in other words, is the revelation of the true God who brought all things into existence. So John then tells us something absolutely remarkable. We come to verse 14. The word, the logos, became flesh. So the preexistent creative word, right, that John identifies with Jesus, who spoke the universe of things into existence, becomes flesh. Skin and bone becomes human. He, he most definitely became a cowboy fan, okay? What's, what's interesting, there are two words that are used in the Greek for flesh. One is soma, which is, has a, pon, a positive connotation, which means something beautiful, it, the ideal body. Think of someone who works out a lot. I don't know, Thor, whatever. And then the second, the second word for flesh is sarks. It has a negative connotation, which means a body subject to weakness, sickness, and decay. John does not choose Soma. He chooses Sarks. I would have chose Soma. If I'm the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, I'm the reason of my own existence. Talking about God. I would choose Soma, not Sarks, right? And yet we have this upside down picture of the remarkable God who changed the universe. It is the word, the logos, who became Sarks. Sarks is funny. It's, it comes from a Latin word, cara. Our English word is carnal. The Spanish word is carne asada, right? <laughs> he became Sarks. What does that mean? Well, I think this is what John is saying. John is saying the Logos entered into the complicated reality of the human situation shaped around sin, decay, and suffering and deep, utter darkness so that he could not only co-suffer with us, but he could suffer on behalf of us. Emmanuel, the word that we use, we, we sung about it tonight and we talk about it every Christmas. It's found in Isaiah. It's found in Matthew. Emmanuel means God with us. The problem is, what does that even mean? Because like many of us have this idea that God is maybe 10,000 light years away from us. And every now and then he identifies with what we're going through. That's not what Emmanuel means. Emmanuel means, according to the gospel biographies, is that the Logos entered into the darkness and into the unspeakable horror and suffering of our lives in order to rescue us by becoming Sarks, by becoming human. This is the Christmas story in poetry, okay? Some of you are like, oh my God, please stop with the philosophy. Okay, we're gonna move now as we close. This is the shortest message I've ever preached in my life. We transition from the high poetry of John and then we go into the prose of the concrete reality of Luke chapter two. The Christmas story told by Luke is not sentimental, it is gloomy. There's no sugar plums, there's no candy cane, there's no, there's no snow. All we, all we have in the setting is Caesar. Caesar is in charge. His decree is law, and his law is oppressive. Think of the Caesar regime as a universal bioterror surveillance state, kind of like Hunger Games. And then within this setting, you have a, this young couple. Everyone say young couple. This young couple travels from Nazareth. We'll call it Idaho City. It's a small town to Bethlehem to be registered 
Mary is nine months pregnant, as the story goes, and then she goes into labor at Bethlehem. Here's the thing. There's no Target to buy a well-designed pack-and-play to get bottles. There's no local hospitals. There's no hotels. We're not even certain where they stayed. Some scholars are like flummoxed. They're like, well, maybe they stayed in a cave. Other scholars say, well, maybe they stayed in a a barn that was below um, where people lived in. We just don't know. However, we are certain that there was no room for this young couple, which in antiquity would have been absolutely, what's the word that I'm looking for? Tragic. Antiquity privileged hospitality as its number one virtue. So Luke is telling us that it's not that there was just no room and there's a lot of people hanging out. It was Christmas time and everyone was shopping and there was just, you know, all the hotels were taken. No, what Luke is saying is that they were rejected. This young couple were rejected. Number two, Luke also tells us that Jesus was placed in a manger. We all know what a manger is. Manger is an unsanitary feeding trough for animals. This is Sark's. This is carne asada. This is flesh and blood. This is the God of the universe becoming one of us. Like, this doesn't even make sense. Like, none of this is a fitting welcome for the one who, who holds the universe together, right? This is not a fitting welcome for the one who created you, knows you by name, knows your history, knows every horrible decision, knows when you men went to the club, you drank too much, you woke up in someone else's bed, you vomit all over yourself, and then you walked home, the walk of shame, and you're like, oh my God, what did I just do? The God who loves you in spite of everything, the one who, that God, who loves you when you felt most unlovable, became this. This is, but this is not a fitting welcome for him. As I mentioned earlier, and again, as I close, the Christmas story rescues us from our earthbound delusions about reality and helps us to reassess reality around Jesus. So, Chris, what is that reality based upon Jesus like? What does it look like? Well, I think it's this. I'll say it this way. It's that God became, and this is God's plan to rescue the world, which is upside down, that God became a vulnerable baby born into an impoverished home, into a homeless family who experienced the horror of rejection. This Jesus, who we know, the Logos, eventually grew up, forgave the sins of the people. He healed the sick, transformed matter, and then he died on the cross for the sins of the world, and he defeated the powers of darkness on the cross. And much like a Berkey filter or a water filter, which is designed to hold on to the toxins and the pollutants of water and then release fresh water, Jesus became human to absorb and to hold on to our unspeakable grief and sorrow and sin and our darkness. And in his death, Jesus released new life, new hope, new joy, new life, new peace. And this is what we celebrate tonight. This is the light that shines in the darkness. This isn't poetry. This isn't, let's not mock God with metaphor. This is concrete reality. The light that is shining in the darkness has entered into our existence. 
and absorbed our pain and our sin and our sorrow and our anxiety and our suffering on behalf of us. And here's the good news. The light is still winning today. The light is winning over our addictions. Some of you might not think that, but it is. The light is winning over our messed up neural pathways. The light is absorbing our profound sense of rejection and shame that we can't shake from the past. The light is healing and transforming our lives. This is the light of the world that brings healing to us. I'm not offering you hopium. Hope, like social media, there's like a, a whole meme, like hope's not a strategy. And I just want to say, shut up. Strategy by you're making a you're making a categorical you're making a category um, mistake because when you say that because implicit within making a strategy is the idea of hope we are meaning hope seeking creatures the very fact I'm I'm going off on my little my little tangent here okay the very fact that we do strategic things is because we hope and the only hope that we have is found in Jesus. Who is the light of the world? Who is the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the beginning? The reason for his own existence, who decided to become a vulnerable baby, carne asada, for you and I. And in his death and in his resurrection, we now have life and life more abundantly. Tonight, we can celebrate no matter what, no matter what it feels like outside, no matter what it feels like on the inside of our heart or our mind. If you are in Christ, the light is winning. I love this story as I end, and then I want to pray for you. Uh, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a, it's, it's a sermon that he wrote when he was 28, a couple years before World War II. It's on Christmas. It's on uh the, the birth of Jesus alludes to the birth of Jesus it talks about light shining in the darkness and this is what he wrote you all know about accidents in mines in the last few weeks we have had to read over and over in the papers about such an accident the men who have to go down every day into the mine shafts deep into the earth to do their work are constantly in danger that someday one of the tunnels will collapse or that they will be buried alive by an underground explosion then they are down there in the earth where it is dark as night, left all alone. Their fate, they imagine, has caught up with them. This is the moment that even the bravest miner has dreaded all his life. Shouting can do no good, no more than raving and running head on into the wall. Neither will it help to exhaust his strength and efforts to get out. But the more a human being realizes that he is totally helpless, the more he rages, while around him all remain silent. He knows that up above, people are, are running around, that women and children are crying, but the way is blocked. He cannot reach them. Nothing's left for him but his final moments. He knows that people are working feverishly up there. His mates are digging with dogged energy through the rocks or the ones who are trapped. Perhaps here and there, some will still find hope or be found and rescued, but down here in the depths of the farthest shaft, there is no hope anymore. All that remains now is torment waiting for death. But then suppose he should suddenly hear a faint sound as if of knocking, of hammering, of rocks breaking, and then of a faraway voice calling, calling into the emptiness and darkness. And this banging and digging gradually gets louder until suddenly with a mighty blow, the hammering comes close by, echoing back. And at last, a friend's deep voice, one of his mates, shouts his name. Where are you? Help is coming. 
Then all at once, the despairing man leaps up, his heart almost bursting with excitement and waiting and screams with all his might, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, help me. I can't get through, I can't help, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I can hold on till you come, just please come soon. And he listens beside himself with concentration as each blow comes near, each passing second seems like an hour. He can't see anything at all, but he can hear the voices of the helper. Then at last, wild, desperate hammer blows, rings into his ear. Rescue is at hand. The light is now shining in the darkness. This is Christmas. Light shining in the darkness, breaking us out of our caves of absolute despair and helplessness. It's Jesus who's the one that brings hope and life. And that is what we celebrate this evening. Can I get an amen? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room. Lord, we, dec- we thank you that the light is shining in a dark world. Lord, we thank you that the light won 2,000 years ago over the powers of, of darkness. Well, we thank you. We come here to celebrate, even though maybe we're stressed and maybe we're overwhelmed and we're exhausted and we're tired or maybe our hearts are filled with grief this, this Christmas. Whatever it might be, I, I thank you, Holy Spirit, you would come and let your light shine in the darkness of our heart. Let the light come and shine in the darkness of our minds. But I thank you that you would even begin to rewire neural pathways. Those who are filled with anxiety and fear and longing and loneliness, you would come and, and you would bring healing. In Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that we would leave encouraged that yes, Jesus, the last two years, or maybe for some people the last 10 years, the last 20 years have, have been hard, or for some people tragic, or others unspeakable. But I thank you that we would leave with a, a grounded, rooted hope, not hopium, but an authentic hope that your light is shining in the darkness, not only of the cosmos, not only in uh, our world, but your, dark, your light is shining in the darkness of our hearts. So I just thank you, Father, that you would come and bring peace to your people. Come and bring life and hope in Jesus' name. If you could keep your eyes closed, your heads bowed. If there's anyone in this room, you would say, Chris, I don't know Jesus, but there's a lot of darkness in my life. I'm in that cave that you talked about. I don't know how to get out, and I need to get out. I'm not quite sure about all the Jesus stuff, but I I think I need him. And if you want to open up your heart to the reality of the presence of Jesus in your life, I guarantee you there are so many people in this room that have done what you're about to do who have never regretted that decision, which absolutely transformed their life. And if there's anyone like that, you say, I need Jesus tonight, this Christmas, to shine in the darkness of my mind, my heart, my spirit, whatever it might be, with every eye closed, every head bowed, could you just raise your hand? I would like to pray for you. Anyone like that? Anyone like that? Okay. I thought I saw a few hands. Father, I thank you for those hands that were raised. I bless them. I thank you that you would come and you bring life and hope. And we thank you that you are the one who forgives us of our sins. And I thank you that you would shine in the darkness and the complicated reality of their hearts and their minds. Lord, you know know their name. You know exactly what they're going through. And I thank you that you would show the reality of your love 
to them. In Jesus' name we pray. We thank you, Father. We bless them. And we thank you for this Christmas. And we thank you for doing incredible work in 2022. And all of God's people said, amen. Can we give Jesus a hand? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.